0: to understand and then to make it accessible in some way. I I felt in, in times in my life that I can't reach God, that I've got that there's something blocking me, that there's some type of separation, that there's some type of some type of something there. And that if I could just do enough, if I could just do a little bit more, if I could study a little bit more, if I could pray a little bit harder, if I could serve more, then I could connect to Him but I I just can't seem to get to that level. And then we see how Jesus interacted with the people that came to him. And it was those who, who were so well studied, who knew every word of the scripture backwards and forwards, who so often missed the point. And it was the little children who he said, these are the ones for whom belongs the kingdom of God. So today we're going to talk about theology. Something I, I, I hope you can, understand, you can you can hear in my, in my sermon this morning by the end of it is that uh, theology is a big word, but we all have one. Uh, your theology is what you believe about God. Your theology is what you believe about God. So every human has a theology because we all believe something about God. Even an atheist has a theology because... The foundation of their theology is that God does not exist, and then they work from that standpoint. Christian has a theology that God does exist and that we can meet him and understand him through his word and through the Spirit. But we all have a theology, and our theologies are shaped differently. So your theology is shaped by the home you grew up in, your parents, the teaching you've sat under, the scriptures that you've read, the songs you've sung, your personal experiences, what you've been through in life. But everybody has a theology. And the wild thing about theology is that it's not this separate box. It's not this separate thing that's outside of all the rest of our life. Like Sunday morning is church time, and this is my church time, and then Monday morning is work time, and this is my work time, and the two don't really cross or intersect. Theology, what we believe about God, it intersects with everything we believe about everything else. What you believe about God impacts how you live your life, even in the small, mundane, and ordinary things. Sometimes most poignantly in the small, mundane, and ordinary things. We may not be intentionally applying our theology when we go to a grocery store, but in a way, what we believe about God affects what we eat and what we don't eat and where we shop and where we, what we spend, how we spend our money. There's a, a, Pope John Paul II has a, a, a work called the, the Theology of the Body, and it's all about how our physical human bodies and what we believe about them and how we use them intersects with what we believe about God. There are theologies of work, there's, there's you could look, you could find theologies on anything, theologies of sports, there are theologies of video games, there are theologies of clothes and, and food, and there's theologies of all different things, theologies of... of of education and fitness. Because what we believe about God impacts what we do. And Pastor Kevin talked about this a little bit last week, that there is no sacred to secular divide. But oftentimes we look for one or we try to create one or we we act like there really is one. And what we do at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning in, in, in church doesn't really impact or touch in any tangible way what we do at 11 a.m. on Monday morning at work or in school and we don't really apply the two or we don't really put the two together and we have this kind of separation one of the goals of the life groups is to start breaking that to start to have these meetings of, of the with the Lord and with each other throughout the weeks where we can come into that space together but I want to talk today about a theology of work I think it's important because everybody works in some way. Everybody works. Even if you're not paid for it, you're working. You're spending your time in some way. You're doing something. Sometimes we have this separation where we... we, uh, And sometimes it's it's pushed, and sometimes it's it's pushed back against. But this kind of thought that... um, a pastor or a missionary or someone in the, the nonprofit world or some of these these kind of, uh, uh, these kind of positions is somehow more holy or better or more honoring to God than someone in, in a secular work environment or position. I don't think that's biblical. Um, I think oftentimes we get this message that if we are working uh, outside of the church then there's a kind of two ways that we can serve the Lord through that. One is to take the money that we make in our job and to give it to the church or to give it to missions or something like that. And number two is to maybe start a Bible study at church or evangelize our coworkers or invite our boss to church on Christmas or something. And these are kind of the only two ways that we can combine church and work, um, our faith and what we do on Monday, Sunday to Monday. <clears throat> but... What I hope you understand and and hear in my message by the end of today is that what you do on Monday matters to God. So whether you're a teacher or a nurse or a salesperson or a claims adjuster or a stay at home parent or you're working in retail or you're an architect or a custodian or a fireman or a scientist or a student, what you do matters to God. Not just what you do here on Sunday morning and not just the songs you sing. What you do in your work matters to God, and he can and will and wants to and has purposes to use you as his ambassador in your workplace, in your work environment. So we're going to start by going back to the beginning. Two weeks ago, I went back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1 to talk about uh, uh, where we were starting. I'm going back to Genesis 1 again here. Um, The Bible starts with work. The first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God starts the, the Bible by working. Okay? God is in the act of creating. God is acting on creation. He speaks into existence all things. He uses his hands and the dust of the ground to form man in his own image. He takes the rib of man and then forms woman. He is act- acting, he is working. There is, this is a working God. This is not a separate, distant, theistic, not really engaged God. This is a God who is in the, in the dirt of the ground. The Spirit hovers over the waters. The God of creation is creating. He is acting. He is working. He is doing something. And then He makes us, as people, man and woman, male and female, He created them, He makes us, in His image, as workers. And after making us in his image as workers, as his representatives, comment, one of the commentaries I looked up said we, that it, as his image, it means we bear the essence of God, reflect his attributes, act on his behalf. And in the context of Genesis 1, acting on his behalf means ruling and subduing. Genesis one twenty six says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So this first command that God gives his people is a command of work. To rule and subdue. And something that I found really interesting while I was looking into this was this word, with this word subdue. I think sometimes when we think of subdue, it can kind of have like a, maybe a negative connotation. But in thinking about this word subdue... Uh, the the idea here is that the 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 word subdue implicates and 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 engages with culture it's the this idea of creating culture and when we create culture we culture necessitates community and society there need to be peoples together and community and society necessitates industry because in community and society we have to do something to care for each other. We buy, we sell, we work, we serve. And industry necessitates jobs, individual jobs, people working. And so this act of subduing is creating and cultivating culture within the world. And culture necessitates community, community necessitates industry, industry necessitates work. In Genesis 2, 5, uh, before man was made, It says that God looked at the garden and said, "So that there was no one to work the ground. So before man, before there was even this, before he'd finished creation, although it was good and perfect, he had purposes for work. Work was intended. Then later in 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That was the purpose why he was put in Eden. Not to just lounge, and relax, and look at the rivers, and hang out with the tigers, and the lions, and the lambs, and and pick some fruit, and just have this extended vacation. It says that he put man in the Garden of Eden to work it, and to take care of it. And all of this happens before sin. So this work is a part of our intended purpose. Work is a part of how we were created. Work is a part of the Kingdom of God. Work is a part of God's intended order. We were made to work. Before man ever sinned, he had a job to do. Work is not the result of sin. It is a blessing and a command. It says right there in 126, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. The command is the blessing. That purpose is the blessing. This work that you get to do is a blessing from God, a gift from your Father, from your Creator. And when we obey His commands, we bring Him glory. And bringing God glory is worship. And so obeying God's commands is worship. And so sometimes we think that like we, we, we combine worship only with music. And we think I'm singing to God and that's what worship is. And so that's, I think, where people get this this thought that like heaven is going to be sitting on the cloud playing this harp just kind of singing to God forever. Just, just endlessly singing to God. Because that's what, how, we, how we worship God in church. I worship God, you know, when I'm driving in my car listening to Hillsong on the way home from work. I, I worship God when I'm singing on Sunday morning. That's what my worship looks like. When I ask the kids in youth group, what does worship look like? It looks like singing, maybe some prayer, But primarily, we have in our heads that worship is singing. But worship is obedience, because obedience gives glory to God. And so our work is worship. When we do it from the right motivation. When we do it with the love of God and love of neighbor in mind, work becomes worship. It was a command in the beginning for man to work. For people, for human beings to work. So from Genesis 1, we see... That work was a part of things. Work was a part of creation. We start with work. But there's also work at the end. And that's where this Isaiah 65 passage comes in. Isaiah 65, I want to read you verses 21 through 23 again. Um, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others will live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. This is a passage... This 21 to 23 is in the midst of that 17 to 25 and 17 to 25 is talking about the new heavens and the new earth This is talking about when Jesus comes back. This is talking about the 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 Redemption of all things God is is working to redeem all things at every moment from the moment sin entered the world He started this storyline this path of Redemption of bringing all things back into his intended order And that ends when Jesus comes back and we see all things made new. Revelation 21 shows us Jesus making all things new. Everything is redeemed. And he will be with his people and he will be their God and they will be his children. I love the imagery of Revelation 21 at the end of the Bible and we see that the sun will be redundant because of how bright and beautiful the glory of God will be present. There will be no need for a temple there because the people will live with their God. This is redemption, this, that's the redemption of all things. That's what Genesis was like. Adam and Eve walked with, with God, walked hand in hand with God. They were naked and felt no shame. A separate part of this, which I, I thought was really interesting, and something that it will come back later, and, and something, but it's not in my notes, is that I was walking around the airport on my way home from Mexico a few months back, And I was looking at everybody and all the everybody's wearing something different. It's interesting to watch what people wear at airports. Because some people come just like as relaxed as humanly possible. They find the most relaxing possible things that they could find. And they've got their neck pillow wrapped around them while they're walking. They've got this big baggy sweatshirt and sweatpants. And they're just like, I'm going to sleep on this plane. I am pre-sleeping right now. I am ready to relax. And then there are other people who use it as a chance to like show off their best clothes that they have and really flex on everyone because they are walking, they're going to see a lot of people from all over the world and they're really strutting their stuff. And I just thought, before man sinned, clothes were not a thing. Clothes are a result of sin. It wasn't until after man sinned that God clothed Adam and Eve. It doesn't really relate to what I'm talking about right now, but it's, <laughs> it's just, it'll, it'll relate to something later on, but I just thought that was really interesting, and it's just something that came to mind as I was walking through the airport. <laughs> just been, there's just been this over-shaming and over-sexualization of the human body, but that's not how God, that's not what God intended for the human body. He intended something more. We'll talk about that later, a little bit. But this is the end of all things here, right? This is the the new heavens and the new earth. And we see here in this passage, in 21 to 23, that they will build houses and dwell in them. They will not labor in vain. They will long enjoy the work of their hands. We've been taught by our culture that relaxing at the end of the day is... Okay, time for sleep. That that is relaxation, to sit, that that is rest. But if you've ever had a really good hobby, then you know that work can be rest. If you like restoring cars, or working on your house, or baking, or creating something, or writing poetry, or or your own words, whatever it may be, you can find rest in work. There will be rest in work in the kingdom of God. And we will glorify him through our work. Because our work is worship. The curse is what screwed that all up. In Genesis 3, we read about the curse. Where Adam and Eve chose to disobey. And that first act of disobedience just kind of disseminated over all mankind. And now there's this separation from God. It seems sometimes like we think that heaven will be a stopping of work. And I think that comes, I think that is, comes from Scripture. Revelation 14:13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. So it says right there, Revelation 14:13, 13, that you, we will rest from our labor in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. So that seems opposed to what we just read in Isaiah 65. But I looked a little bit deeper into it, and I'm not a Greek and Hebrew expert, but I looked a little bit into the original languages, and the word there used for labor is kapas. I may not be pronouncing that. Yeah? Okay, cool. <laughs> and what kap- the way that kapas is, is translated is as intense labor united with troy- toil and trouble. So this is not just normal work. This is from our, we will rest from our toil. We will rest from our trouble. Our work will not be toilsome, troublesome work anymore. It will be joy-bringing work. It will be worshipful work. It will be resting work. And when we look at the curse in Genesis three seventeen through 19, it says, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The word toil there is acivith? Something along those lines? All right, cool. (laughs) Jim, you're here on the perfect day, man. I love it. I've never used Greek in my sermon before. It's good to see you, by the way. But that word can be translated pain, labor, hardship. King James translated it as sorrow, um, toil. So this is now cursed work. You will get your food by the sweat of your brow. It's not going to be easy to work anymore. It's not going to be restful to work anymore. This, this work has been tainted by sin just like everything else but it won't stay that way when Jesus returns and it doesn't have to stay that way now in these moments. We have agency to redeem along with the Lord and we have moments where we can bring in the light of God and carry his redemption. So if this is all true and God intended work to be a good and purposeful thing at the beginning of time and he plans to redeem work to be a good and purposeful thing in the kingdom and the uh, in the coming and the kingdom coming, and the fall and the curse and sin have impacted that reality in the here and now, then that should change our viewpoint on work in general. Uh, Every Good Endeavor is a book by Tim Keller and uh, uh, Leary Alsdorf, and they, they say this, this revolutionary way of looking at work gives all work a common and exalted purpose, to honor God by loving your neighbors and serving them through your work. To honor God by loving your neighbors and serving them through your work. So here we go, we're gonna go, where do we go from here? Where do we go from this now very basic foundation of what the scripture has to say? There's so much more that we could go into, but this basic foundation of what the scripture has to say about work. We know that work is a good thing. We know that we were made on purpose and for a purpose. Work gives us purpose. Work adds to human flourishing work contributes to the common good all work that is not unethical or immoral is good work you are contributing to the community your work is serving in need you are serving the common good Keller and Alsdorf add later on God does not simply create he also loves cares for and nurtures his creation he feeds and protects all he has made but how does his providential care reach us God's loving care comes to us largely through the labor of others. Work is a major instrument of God's providence. It is how he sustains the human world. That God works through us. Our moments on Monday morning of sometimes mundane and feelingly futile work are actually pushing forward the kingdom of God. The problem then in putting Christian work on a pedestal is that it unintentionally devalues Christian work on a pedestal, pastors, missionaries, etc., the call of others. You can be called to be a carpenter, you can be called to be a teacher, you can be called to be a nurse, you can be called to be a store owner, you can be called to be a custodian, you can be called to be a stay-at-home mom, you can be called to be a fill-in-the-blank. God gives everyone different gifts to be used appropriately and intentionally both within and without the doors of the church. God is in the business of redemption. And ever since we fell, ever since sin entered the world, the Lord has put into action this salvation plan, this redemption plan. And that plan won't reach its conclusion until Jesus returns. There are 168 hours in a week. If you sleep eight hours a night like is recommended, which I definitely don't, but maybe some of you do, you've got 112 hours left. If you have a full-time job, then you spend at least 40, 40 40-plus of those working. Some jobs require more time than that, but if you work eight hours a day, then that's a third of your day spent at your job. Can we really come to the conclusion that God is not in that? That His plan for you is to worship Him on Sunday and sing to Him on Wednesday night and do some Bible studies and things, but that He's not working in those eight hours every day plus? or if you're doing other things, if your work includes being at home caring for someone, if your work includes being a, a, a teacher and working late hours or a researcher or you're doing things or you're up all night. I know we've got some folks who work the late shift here. Are we really thinking that God isn't in that? God is in that work too. He's with you there. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God in your workplace, in your studenthood, in your school, wherever you are. In Colossians 3.23-24, through 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So if you read that again in the condensed version, and you take out the few sentences in the middle, you can read it like this, and I think it's still biblical. Whatever you do, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whether you're paid for it or not, There is no separation here between sacred work and secular work, or holy work and unholy work, or Christian work and non Christian work. Dorothy Sayers said, Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The only Christian work is good work well done. So, what does this mean for us? How do we practically apply this now? How do we take this and move it forward? If all ethical, moral work is truly Christian work, if we are all called by the Lord to serve him in the context in which he has placed us, then what does that look like? What does it look like to be a Christian artist, or a Christian electrician, or a Christian line cook, or a Christian postman? I'll tell you what it means. First off, it means excellence, and second off, it means love. It means doing what you do with excellence and intentionality. I combine excellence and love here because the pursuit of excellence without love can sometimes focus entirely on efficiency and productivity and task completion. And I, add, and I add excellence to love because sometimes we can think that love is something that can just be practiced without work and should just come naturally if it's going to happen at all. But Thomas Merton said all vocations are intended by God to manifest his love in the world all vocations, all callings, all work to manifest his love in the world. We can't show God's love without excellence because God's love is excellent. So be excellent in your work. Paul said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Work at it with all your heart. Wherever he has placed you, you're in that space carrying Jesus, carrying the Holy Spirit with you. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Amen? No matter what you do, do it with excellence. Excellence requires intentionality. This is not in my notes, but there's something uh, that in my research called the Ministry of Competence. It means doing your job well so that it be, doesn't become a burden to other people. And that is love. That is excellence. That is glory. And no one is excellent by accident. You can't do something well. You can do something well without trying. You can do a good job without putting in too much effort. You can succeed without breaking a sweat depending on your talents and gifts and circumstances. But true excellence takes effort. It takes will. It takes perseverance. And so does love. Love takes effort and will and perseverance. True gospel love. It took Jesus to the cross. So be excellent in what you do because you've been called to do what you do, whatever it is, for the glory of God and the good of all mankind. Here's an example. If you're a store clerk, someone comes to you asking for something they need in the store. You have an opportunity in that moment to be the light and love of God to them. You make sure they find what they're looking for, you walk with them, and you do it with a smile, you engage them in conversation. You offer suggestions on what may work better, even if it will cost less. This very moment is life. There is a past and there is a future, but this moment that we're living in is the only moment that we are alive right now. So be God in that moment to that person. Be Jesus to that person. Be love to that person. It can slip by with the, oh, it's, it's in aisle three. Or in that moment, you can make their life a little bit lighter. You can give them a friend. You can partner with them in pursuit of what they're looking for. Maybe they'll ask you why you're so kind and you can share the reason for the hope that you have with them. Maybe it will make their day and they'll go out smiling. Maybe they won't notice, won't say thank you, and they'll leave as frustrated and hurried as they were when they came in. But God will notice. Because in that small moment, you took part in his redeeming work. Because you did your job where he put you with excellence and love and you carried his joy and light and shared it with another person. When you hear someone say, do what you do for the glory of God, it can sometimes be hard to know what that means on the ground. I think it means loving God and loving your neighbor the best you know how, the best that you can in your present circumstances. Because his purposes for you are to love him with all your mind and heart and soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. His purpose for you are to lay down your life so that you may find it. Lay down your life so that you can pursue His. Your will so that you can pursue His. Lay down your kingdom to be a part of His greater one. And sometimes in the nitty-gritty of life on earth, that looks like walking with the annoying customer to help them find the applesauce they were looking for. Think about how that speaks to your witness. If you're doing an average or below-average job putting in little effort and gossiping with your coworkers, then your ability to effectively share the love of Jesus has been tainted. How, do you, how you do what you do matters. Our lifestyle has to reflect the holiness of God. Not self-righteousness, but love and humility and mercy. If we do things with excellence and love, then we demonstrate that we are different if we do even the mundane and the boring and the things that don't bring us joy in a way to bring others joy, then we are different. That we are in this world, but not of it. And when people ask questions, we can tell them why. So do your work for the love of God and the love of neighbor. Make spreadsheets and answer emails and design graphics and change diapers and wash dishes and write sermons and study for tests and remodel a bathroom and mow the lawn and brew coffee and ring up the cash register and do everything you do for the glory of God in view of His loving gaze. Do whatever you do as if God is looking at you with love, as if he put you right where you are on purpose at this very moment. This ordinary, mundane, sometimes frustrating or irritating Monday morning is a gift from your Heavenly Father who loves you and put you there for a reason. Another thing to recognize about your work is that God is forming you through it. The Spirit dwells in his people. We are children of the living God and He is present with us in our circumstances. One thing we often think about our faith is that we are saved when we pray the sinner's prayer and we'll go to heaven when we die, but in the meantime, try not to be a jerk, don't swear, don't drink, don't smoke, be a good person, quote-unquote, and just let it be what it is. But lives lived in Jesus are so much more than that. God is shaping us into the image of His Son and he often uses our work to do that. The circumstances, the requirements, the coworkers, the bosses, God can and will use all of these things to shape you, mold you into his image. In these spaces, you have opportunities to practice the presence of God, to demonstrate his love, to pursue his glory, to show compassion and mercy to your neighbor, to act justly and do the right thing, even when it's hard or won't benefit you, to be humble, you are an ambassador for Christ everywhere you go. You represent him everywhere you go. The best way we can do that and remember that is to talk to him. To stay in constant communion. To stay in constant conversation with Jesus. Kara Martin, in her book, Workship, How to Use Your Work to Worship God, recommends setting reminders throughout the day to pray. Small things like the school bell for a teacher each Or each time a a new customer steps up to the counter if working in retail or over the sender of each email that you receive or over each diaper that you change. Talk to the Lord and ask him to show you how you can best represent him and his love in this moment to this person. God uses our work to shape us into who he has called us to be, so we have to be aware and keep our eyes open and our feet on the ground. There's a book that recently came out called Every Moment Holy. And it has a a liturgy, a prayer, for all the ordinary moments of life. For leaving on vacation, for going to bed, for waking up, changing a diaper, losing a loved one, for watching TV or consuming media. It offers a prayer to say in those moments to bring you back to your identity as a child of God, even in the ordinary moments of life. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to have a book list and resource list up on the screen if you want to study more about this. So before we close, and this is my last point here, I want to take you to the book of Exodus for a second. And the names Bezalel and Oholiab may not mean anything to most of you. (laughs) They didn't to me before reading this, just in my daily devotions. But Exodus 31, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze to cut and set stones to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts moreover I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan to help him also I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you this is where God is, is commanding Moses giving him, he gives him the Ten Commandments, and then he gives him far more commandments on what life should look like, and what the temple should look like, exactly how it should be built. And then he says, I chose these men, and I gave them gifts to cut and set stones and to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. It says later in in verse 35, it says... Uh, He's filled them with skills to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So Bezalel, Oholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given ability and skill to know how to carry out all this work of constructing the sanctuary or to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. Now there is the crux of it. He has given each of us ability. He has given each of us gifts. Are we willing to come and do the work? Are we willing to do it, to bring him glory in our space of work? Are we willing to make the changes in our mindset so that we act different? These workers were chosen by God and gifted with all kinds of skills. God chose these men, gave them ability to cut and set stones and work wood, and gave ability to all the skilled workers. God cares about work. If nothing else, notice that here. God cares about work. He shapes us and gives us our giftings. These men were called by God to work on his temple. Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. Nehemiah was a cupbearer who was called by God to rebuild a wall. And the entire book of Nehemiah is about a man and the people of God rebuilding a wall. There is holiness There is favor, there is righteousness, there is beauty in rebuilding a wall. There is God-ordained purpose in rebuilding a wall. In something that just seems so ordinary, that has happened trillions of times in the history of mankind. Walls have been built and walls have been rebuilt. But you can rebuild a wall for the glory of God. God is concerned with the right now because he is redeeming the right now and he is doing it right now. God is at work, and he's working through his people. He is redeeming all things. Revelation 21.5 tells us that he's making all things new. He's using us to anticipate that work right now. God designed work as a part of his perfect, untainted creation, part of his kingdom come. He blessed man with the purpose of work, as we saw in Genesis 1. Work will be a part of his kingdom coming, as we saw in Isaiah 65. God cares about your job right now however mundane and meaningless you may find it at times. God is right there. He has a purpose for you in that job, in that work. And it's probably not to leave that work and step into full-time ministry because every job is full-time ministry. Every job is full-time ministry to the believer. Stay-at-home moms, to business executives, to graphic designers, to educators, to administrators, to students, to the retired. It's a job to be retired, by the way. There's work in being retired. You are a representative of the creator king in your place of work. So do your job with the love of God and love of neighbor as your impetus and motivator and goal. Work with excellence. Work with love. Recognize he is at work in you through what you do and whatever you do. Work at it with all your heart. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, you are servant. There was so much more I wanted to include in this sermon. Books could be written on, on this topic, and actually a lot of them already have been. So here on the screen is a list of books to check out if you're interested in learning more about a theology of work. And also there are some websites if you're not a reader. And not don't have time to read a book, but you want to check it out made to flourish is incredible The theology of work project is really good redeeming productivity is a a quick and easy blog read that you could do in five to seven minutes a day But if you're interested in in growing in in any of this stuff, and I can give you some more of this information afterwards Whatever we do we're called to work at it with all our heart for God's glory Thank you. Let's pray Father God, thank you that you give us purpose that you don't just leave us alone lord but you care about what we do on monday you care about the gifts you've given us being rightly used you care about our mundane and ordinary and boring and frustrating and sometimes seemingly purposeless days and moments and and minutes and you're in every one of them help us to recognize that lord help us to open our eyes tomorrow morning And see you as we step into work. To consider you and your glory. To love you and love our neighbor. And contribute to the common good. Through what we do. Wherever we've been placed. In Jesus' name. Amen.